<clears throat> so um, it's nice to be here at Spirit Rock and uh, given my surgery that you've all been participating in, uh, it's been a nice place for me to be. And uh, it feels like a support, a very supportive place. Uh, feel very supported by the teachers and variety of ways, including they bring me my meal to the yurt there. All my meals, very nice. And, and the staff at Spirit Rock, and I feel so lucky to have that scooter. <laughs> and I hope I haven't frightened any of you. Yesterday or the other day I discovered the fast speed. <laughs> and uh, it's been nice to be here this way. And, um, you know, so it was a, it'll be a week ago yesterday that I had this little surgery for my foot. And uh, the most wonderful thing about it was when the, kind of the... I'll tell you the most wonderful thing in a moment about the surgery, but the, kind of the wonderful things leading up to it was um, the whole experience was very pleasant. It was very relaxing to go in to the hospital and the people there were um, very competent and, and the most wonderful part of it was that they were also friendly. And to experience all this goodwill and friendliness and kindness um, and joy. There was a kind of, at least in the ambulatory care operating area, there was joy and it was just such a delight to be there. And then uh, they played music during the surgery. I don't know if they usually do that for surgery, but they did for me. <laughs> and um, so it was very nice, the whole thing. And um, so this idea of uh, being in a field of kindness uh, kind of maybe because I was un under drugs, but uh, <clears throat> you know, this, to be in the field of kindness, it was it had a big impact on me. It was very nice, and then to come here so soon afterwards and be in a different field of kindness and to f be a recipient of so much kindness and goodwill was uh, very nice. Very nice to practice in this kind of environment. And so you know, it's a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a, one of these, you know, common enough experiences of our frailty and frailty of life and how things, you know, things like these things can happen and part of life is to live with them, hopefully with grace and ease and equanimity. I used to, there was a period of time when I had bad back <coughs> and... Um, one of the great bad back stories was at, uh, my back went out the first day of the three-month retreat at IMS. And, um, and it was really bad. I thought something was going to break. And I had to walk so slowly through the building to go anywhere because otherwise something was going to break. It felt so bad. And luckily for me, uh, when I sat, I could relax my, my belly and my stuff. And that, that gave a little bit of relief. But then I had to get up and walk. I had to walk so slow. And... Um, at the end of the retreat, some person came up to me and said, Gil, you are so inspiring. You were into the retreat from day one. <laughs> I was just trying to cope. But it was quite helpful because um, when there's that kind of, limit, that kind of limitation, uh, the, the, the consequences of my thinking and my intentions were so clear and so obvious. And I, you know, I could see that if I had certain thoughts, 
the back would get worse. And if I had other thoughts, it would lighten up a little bit. And so the, it was so intense that the only way I can, you know, one of the only ways I could cope, I had to, I was required to be very attentive to my mind and not let my thoughts get the upper hand because the consequences were this tightening up. So it was, I, it was great, you know, so I was kind of, you know, by necessity, quite there, much more than I would have been if I had just, you know, wandered off the street to IMS and started a three-month retreat, you know, just trying to figure out what's going on. So it's kind of nice, this, uh, and um, so then yesterday, <clears throat> I went into um, San Francisco to visit her for the afternoon, to visit her friend, known for 40 years, and um, compared to her, I'm the epitome of youth and health. She's 89 years old, and um, she, had, she fell and broke her hip, which, you know, can be quite serious for someone that age, and it is quite serious for her. And uh, we don't quite know what way she's going to go at this point. And um, so it was very nice to go see her. And, and um, she's uh, been a Buddhist practitioner for, I would say, for 50 years. And been a Buddhist teacher one of the, uh, for at least 30 years. And a wonderful teacher. And here she is coming to the end of her life. I mean, maybe not now, immediately, but with this injury and frail, couldn't walk very well. And um, she'd asked, to, asked me to come and see her to be able to have some kind of discussion about where she was with her life right now and her practice and all that. And uh, at some point I said to her, um, you know, you only have one role left. There's only one thing left for you to do. And as if not even missing a beat, she said, love. And that's what I had in mind, to tell her. The only thing she had left to do was to love. And that she could, that uh, she'd done what she needed to do, and she had lots of people who'd care for her, and, and what was left was just to love. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, it's nice if we can realize that before we're 89. So this field of goodwill, field of kindness, field of love, and is it something that's far away, the ability to open to love or to feel it or appreciate it? Um, I don't think it's that far away. It's a kind of a miracle that we can have kindness to each other and goodwill to ourselves. The other thing about, uh, you know, my being, I don't know, being limited with my surgery and hobbling around, is uh, it's a wonderful, also uh, reinforces the wonderful, the teacher, the teaching of simplicity. And um, some of you know this, that these kinds of retreats that you're doing here this week, that uh, one of the really important teachers is simplicity. And uh, the idea is to try to be as simple as you can within reason. Um, so, you know, no reading and talking and probably no writing and just do very few things, you know, sit and walk and then you get to do it again. 
and then you maybe go to a meal and eat and do your yoga job, but it's pretty pared down, very simple. And how it's a teacher is that um, it helps us to see more clearly when we make things more complicated than they need to be. We get to see how we want something different or we want more or we want to get, you know, we want something. And that, uh, and the simplicity teaches us not only to see that more clearly, all the complexity we add to it, the, um, thinking about the future, thinking about the past, wanting a better experience and wanting something else. But it also can teach us that it's possible to have a very profound sense of well-being in a, with a simplicity of being, with just being, just being here, breathing, being present. And it's one of the great powerful lessons for me in doing this practice that we're all doing here, is to discover feelings of well-being, joy, subtleness, that came uh, not because of anything in the world around me was, was particularly going well or poor or anything. It wasn't dependent on what was going on around me, but rather um, seemed to well up from inside, from just being, the joy of being, the joy of just being here. And it's not an easy kind of joy to discover because we have a lot of conditioning, a lot of beliefs, a lot of habits, a lot of desires and attachments that, you know, things have to be a certain way and we have to figure certain things out or arrange things or we have to get to a certain stage of meditation before day four or otherwise sky falls down. I don't know what happens. And, um, and so that we make it more complicated, but to kind of, to let all these kinds of shoulds and needs and, and desires fall away in, in favor of just being, and then to discover there's well-being in that being is a beautiful thing. And uh, it's a wonderful way of beginning to um, break the hold, break the addiction of wanting, of needing, of expecting, of even of defending and building up self and all these things that we're doing. So that, so, you know, for me also, it kind of supported this movement towards simplicity this week. And uh, so much so that I thought maybe I'm too simple to give a talk. And the only thing that protected me or not protected me, but was, well, what am I supposed to be teaching if I can't be free with not having a talk? Then I'm no good. <laughs> then I'm not teaching, right? So we're just here. You know, we're just here together. Isn't that great? Some of you are waiting for a great Dharma talk. And I'd do you a terrible disservice <laughs> if I did. Because maybe it would take you away from yourself. <laughs> you know, when you listen to these Dharma talks, one of the op options you have is to not use it as entertainment, not use it as something to take you away from yourself, but rather as a practice, to continue your practice in meditation in while the Dharma talk's being given. And... Um, 
and uh, sometimes use a Dharma talk as a kind of a guided meditation uh, to kind of hear what's being said and see how it, how it lands on you, where it settles in your body, how it feels. Kind of feel your way with the Dharma talk as opposed to the ideas of it and agreeing or not agreeing or filing it away. I'm going to do that to try those things to, you know, tomorrow when I get up and, you know, all these, those are all fine approaches. But there's a whole other way which has more to do with this, this realm of just being here, simple. Are you okay with that? Or is that not good enough for you? Are you not good enough just to be? So to, to, to be simple, the miracle of simplicity One of my Zen teachers once said, someone asked him if he believed in miracles or something like that. And he said, your next breath is a miracle. Your next breath is a miracle. Isn't that nice? You don't have to go very far to see a miracle. It is kind of pretty much a miracle that we're here. I mean, shock pretty complicated to be a human being and to breathe and to think and to feel and to walk around and it's pretty amazing. There was one retreat many years ago where someone came to the retreat. I asked her, why are you here? And she said, after the last retreat, I wanted to understand what a thought is. What's a thought? It wasn't like, you know, what, she didn't want to know what she's thinking about. You know, you know, all my inner inner demons and concerns and figure out my beliefs. She wanted to know, what's a thought? And, and she said, I wanted to know where the thoughts come from. Have you ever wondered where your thoughts come from? It's kind of a miracle to have a thought. Boom, there it is. Unbidden sometimes. Where did that come from? So to appreciate that. There's a discourse um, from the ancient texts from the Buddha's time that talks about miracles. And Bhikkhu uh, Bodhi translates this word miracle as, here is, uh, wonderful and marvelous, wonders and marvels. And um, my, this is kind of a piece of folklore, or my idea of this text was a bunch of people sitting around the campfire and having a hilarious time um, outdoing each other themselves with um, uh, describing a wonderful miracle that happened when the Buddha was born. So there's like 16 of them, but I'll just read it, give you a, a flavor. Uh, so they were sitting around and the way it's, it's not, that's not how it's actually depicted here, but that's my imagination. They're just sitting around having a great, hilarious time. <laughs> but it, but um, uh, Ananda is saying these things. Ananda says, I heard this from the Buddha himself. And he says, um, I heard and learned this from the Buddha's own lips. Mindful and fully aware, the Bodhisatta, the Buddha-to-be, 
passed away from the Tusita heaven and descended into his mother's womb. This I remember as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. I heard this from the Buddha's lips. When the Bodhisattva passed away from the Tusita heaven and descended into his mother's womb, then a great immeasurable light surpassing the splendor of the gods appeared in the world with its gods, its maras, and its brahmans, and this generation with its recluses and brahmins, with its princes and its people, and even in those abysmal world interspaces of vacancy, gloom, and utter darkness. This is a guided meditation. Even in those abysmal world of interspaces and vacancy, gloom, and utter darkness, where the moon and sun, mighty and powerful as they are, cannot make their light prevail, there too a great immeasurable light surpassing the splendor of the gods appeared. And the beings reborn there perceived each other by that light. And in this 10,000 galaxies, these 10,000 galaxies shook and quaked and trembled, and there too a great immeasurable light surpassing the splendor of the gods appeared. This too I remember as a wonder and a marvel when the Buddha was born. Isn't that great? I think it's great. So it goes on like this, you know, all these marvels, miracles, and so to, not to be outdone by that. Um, it says, um, when he was born, four, when he came out, was born, four young gods received him and uh, received him and set him before his mother saying, rejoice, O queen, a son of great power has been born to you. And then two jets of water appeared to pour from the sky, one cool and one warm, for bathing the Bodhisatta and his mother. This too I remember as a wonder and a marvel. And then this is the last one I'll read. I heard and learned this from the Buddha's own lips. As soon as the Bodhisattva was born, he stood firmly with his feet on the ground, and then he took seven steps facing north, and with a white parasol held over him, he surveyed each quarter, each direction, and uttered the words of the leader of the herd. I am the highest in the world, I am the best in the world, I am the foremost in the world, this is my last birth, now there is no renewal of being for me. This too is a marvel and a wonder. So, it's, you know, it's pretty good to be walking and talking as soon as you're born. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this guy had so much conceit <laughs> that he needed to become a Buddha. <laughs> the best and the greatest. So, anyway, it goes on, right? So then the Buddha is sitting there in the campfire and they're all having a good time, saying these, all, all these miracles. And then the Buddha says, um, uh, that being so, Ananda, said the Buddha, remember this too as a wonder and a marvel. Remember this too as a miracle. Remember this too as a miracle, miraculous quality of the Buddha. Here, Ananda, for the Buddha, feelings are known as they arise, 
as they are present, as they disappear. Perceptions are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Thoughts are known as they arise, as they are present, as they disappear. Remember this too, Ananda, as a wonderful and marvelous quality of the Buddha. So the whole thing is a literary setup to kind of, kind of have you over, you know, all these great miracle stories that go on and on and like, wow, wow, this is, that's pretty awesome. And then comes the singer. The, the Buddha says, well, actually the real miracle, the real miracle is to not just have a thought or a feeling or a perception. Those are pretty miraculous to have those. But to see them arise and to see them pass away. To see a thought arise, where did it come from? It wasn't there, now it's there. And then at some point it goes away. The thoughts that you had yesterday in meditation, where are they today? And to have feelings arise. They persist for a while, sometimes short, sometimes long, and then they go. To have perceptions, perceptions tend to go pretty quickly. They, but to actually see a perception arise, and they pass. The word perception is sanya, and the way that the ancient psychology works, it's really closely akin to um, a conce- our conceiving of what we see or what we perceive. So the concept we have. So you know, we see a bell. You know, to see this as a bell is a perception, is a conception. We conceive of it as a bell, and to watch and how our mind paints our reality with concepts all the time is one of the fascinating things about getting the mind quiet and focused and really in the present moment and seeing, wow, you're doing it all the time, kind of painting the world, even though, you know, the, it is a bell, <laughs> kind of, more than kind of. Um, it's not inherently a bell. The, um, I grew up with a thing just like this, that, um, uh, we used uh, to hold firewood. But it was bought in an antique shop back in where the country I was born in, in Norway, where it had been a big cauldron for cooking in. You know, so what is it? So, you know, we could easily change what this is to something else. And um, we could use it to store something and it becomes something else. So we, we conceive of it a certain way. So we conceive of ourselves, we conceive of the world, of others, and to actually be able to watch the conception happen, the birth of an idea, birth of a thought, birth of a perception, birth of a thought, of a feeling, it gives you a tremendous opportunity, gives you a tremendous power to not buy into it, to see it as something that's not inherently, permanently, this is the way it is, to see it as just phenomena that comes and goes and that, you know, and your attachment to it or your resistance to it or your getting involved in it is distinct from its arising and passing. So the simplicity the simplicity of the most ordinary things that we can experience Buddhism is the place where awakening can happen, the place where freedom can happen, the place where 
something profound can happen. And one of the great profound marvels and miracles is the simplicity of being, the freedom that's found in just being with this, like it is. To have a thought arise and just let it be a miracle. Let it be what it is without buying into it or investing a lot of importance to it without giving it a lot of authority. Just a thought. And there's freedom in that little movement. And that, that freedom exists independent of what the content of your thought is. It doesn't matter what you're thinking about. To see it as just something that arose and passes. So I'll tell you a story. Uh, uh, two or three weeks ago I went to San Quentin, which is a state prison here in California, just not so far from here. And, uh, it's a, and they have some pretty, they have some people in there who should be in prison. And um, so I went to see, be, be, be participate in a program it was quite powerful to be just be in the room um, with 28 men who were lifers, most of them who had murdered someone, who, in addition, were transformed. It was quite, it's quite something to go to St. Quentin to these particular programs, that meditation programs and variety of programs where the spiritual transformation happens, and see some of these men who've been in prison for sometimes 30 years they needed to be in prison for a long time before they finally understood there has to be a different way. And then they find a different way and it's quite something to meet these people and see how transformed the person can be. But there was one guy who spoke, he said, um, told a story that um, he had been a member of a, a street gang called the Crips in Los Angeles, so it's probably one of the worst of the gangs, right? But he had changed after many years in the prison, and he was actually become a, um, a, a teacher of this program in nonviolence and transformation and mindfulness, and that's just, we went to visit. So he was quite, quite a beautiful man. So here he was, one of the teachers for it, and one day he was sent to solitary confinement. And everyone else was like, what? How'd that happen? He's like one of our mindful leaders. And uh, so when he came back, he told a story, and then he told us a story, what happened to him. Um, someone, there was a rumor in the prison that someone from the Crips was um, out to do harm to someone else in the prison. But there was no names attached just someone from the Crips, someone who had been part of that gang. And um, so the logical thing to do is to take all the Crips, former Crips prisoners and put them in solitary confinement. Right? There's a logic to that. So he was in solitary confinement for two months. And when he, he didn't know why at first, he just told he had to go. And um, and uh, he had expected solitary confinement to be a peaceful place. But it turns out that in San Quentin, it's a very noisy place, he said. People are screaming and yelling all day and night long. It's a difficult place to be. He said for the first two weeks, he just stood there. 
in his, in his little cell. And he stood there being uh, resentful, feeling it wasn't fair, how could this be? He had turned his life around, he had not done, hadn't done anything, and uh, here he was, you know. What happened that he was sent there? And uh, for two weeks, and after two weeks, it said, it finally dawned on him, you know, maybe I should try to meditate. And so, um, <clears throat> he sat down to meditate, he said, I could just do two minutes. And then the, the prison got to me, the noise and everything, and my resentment and anger, and all got to me. And so then he stood up and stood there more, and then he tried sitting again. And he just kept doing it, doing it. And slowly, over the days and the weeks, he could sit, meditate for longer and longer and longer, until eventually he could meditate for several hours at a time. And he's meditating much, much of the time, like you're here. And then he said, kind of with a kind of a smile on his face, he said, and then at some point, a few times, I dropped into this perfect stillness, completely still and quiet. And the, all the sounds of the mon- of the prison kind of receded, and it was you know was still there, but it was like far away. And my thoughts that had been so strong, you know, basically they thinned out, got quieter and quieter, weaker and weaker, and then there was point of no thoughts, quiet. And then he smiled and he said, but then I got excited by it. <laughs> and he popped out. And so he did his two months that way. I like this story because of the power of this practice. The power of giving yourself over completely, um, regardless of whether you're justified in your resentment regardless if you feel like it's unfair, regardless of all kinds of things, it's possible to give yourself over to this moment, to this life here, this moment. To be alive right now is a miracle. To be alive right now is a phenomenal gift. And to be able to kind of really inhabit this moment, to inhabit it with a curiosity and interest, what is this? What is this life? What is a thought? What is a feeling? What is it going on here? To kind of have that become more strong than the pull and the attraction and the the past and the future and the figuring out and the thoughts that might be there. Not that those stop automatically, but to turn 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 it around on itself. And here you're thinking about the future and planning something and look at it and say, wow, isn't that amazing? If you can say, wow, you're probably in the present moment. As opposed to, oh no. <laughs> so it's the, the wow approach is much better than the oh no. Wow, if it's happening in the present moment, it kind of deserves a wow. The miracle of this moment. So the theme for this talks are the five faculties, which are part of this miraculous show, that we have these faculties, these capacities 
for faith or conviction, for engagement, for vitality, for energy, for mindfulness, awareness, for concentration, composure, and for wisdom or insight. They're amazing things. And um, one of the ways I like to, I like to kind of, many ways of understanding these five faculties, I like to think of them kind of like a pyramid, with the base of the pyramid being a really strong foundation in faith <coughs> and certain wisdom and understanding of what you're doing, or conviction. And that that supports um, the capacity to be concentrated and to engage in what we're doing. So it's hard to engage, to put energy into some activity, unless you have some belief in it, some conviction or confidence involved, or some faith. And uh, I go round and round over the years by which translation of sada I like the most, but lately it's faith, because um, because of the, I think John said this too, because of the heart quality, that, that's the devotional quality that faith kind of arouses for me. But you don't have to, you don't like faith, you don't have to. It's optional to call it faith. But it's a foundation for us to engage, for energy to be there, and for this thing called concentration. And then energy and concentration then point to the top of the pyramid, which is uh, mindfulness, sati. Or uh, some sati is a variety of things. It can be mindfulness is a fine translation. Uh, our capacity to know clearly what's happening is another way of understanding what sati is. But also a good translation for sati in some instances is awareness. And that's another miracle that we're aware. And I think one of the great things to be curious about is not what you're aware of, but the fact that you're aware. And that shift has been very meaningful for me because I was spent years, decades, um, focusing on the things that I could think about, the things I could be aware of, without noticing that in order to think something, I had to be thinking. <laughs> to be aware of something, I had to be aware. And it's like two sides. And once I was able to turn my attention 180 degrees around, and be aware that awareness was happening, independent of what I, I was aware of, then the allure and the power and the fascination of the things I could know began to lessen. Or the things I could be afraid of began to lessen. Or the things I could hate began to lessen. In favor of beginning to appreciate the miracle, the specialness of just being aware. What is this thing of awareness? What is mindfulness? It's one of the open secrets that, uh, I, you know, it's kind of odd for me to say, here I'm a mindfulness teacher, and I don't know what mindfulness is. Is that a relief? <laughs> or are you now like gonna go home? <laughs> it's, but it's a miracle, I love it. I practice it, I mean, teach it, and. I find it so powerful. I don't have to know exactly what it is. It's just like, wow. And so to kind of feel, to be aware, 
you have to be aware of something to be aware, but you don't have to kind of be wedded to the, what you know. The fact that there's receiving it. So these things, faith, some basic understanding that points us in the right direction is the foundation. And then there's engagement, involvement, energy, and then there's concentration, and then there's mindfulness on top of it. And there's, you, can, you can turn it around and have mindfulness in the bottom because that's what gets it all going. It's, how this works is a little optional, but, but I like seeing it this way because um, what we're do, one of the things we're doing here is putting together the conditions to allow, uh, to allow um, our faculties to operate. We're putting together the conditions that allows a natural capacity to shine and radiate. As opposed to thinking of the five faculties as things we're supposed to be doing, look, I gotta get my conviction up, and then I get my wisdom up, and then I have to get my energy up, <laughs> and then I better, you know, get some concentration going, you know, and, you know, and do the mindfulness thing. Um, you know, be exhausted by the time you get to breakfast. Uh, what we're doing is trying to put the conditions in place that allow the natural capacity for these things to kind of be there, to radiate and shine through us. And so some of the things we do here, like the silence of not talking, no social talking, um, the simple life, the schedule. Um, some of us sometimes find it very, very meaningful, very helpful to go slow, do things slowly, eat slowly. All these things are putting together conditions that make it easier and easier for us, to, for awareness, for effort, for love, for these things to kind of just have space. A lot of letting go, we do this practice, let go so that something that can operate here. You know, some of the, you've probably done this exercise before of, of having a teacher tell you to stop being aware. You ever tried that? They'll cut it out. Just stop being aware. Come on, stop it. And as soon as you're told to stop, it's hard, right? And um, sometimes I give people the exercise um, to, um, in the meditation, I say, okay, now, from now on, you're allowed to think. And to, but just, just, know, just look at your thinking. Know your thinking. And not a few people will say after that, well, I've been trying to let go of my thoughts and pushing them away and struggling with them, but as soon as I was having permission to think and I just looked at them, they faded away. <laughs> Sometimes the very struggle against them is what keeps them going. So this idea of, of a faculty, uh, concentra- the word concentration is samadhi, and samadhi is not a laser focus of the mind. It's not a, not a doing. You can do things, you can focus your mind for sure. But the word samadhi means, um, is a state of being. It's a faculty, it's a capacity, it's a state of being, of uh, being unified, being whole. Where all our faculties are working in harmony for the same purpose. We're not at cross purposes with ourselves. You're across purpose with yourself if you sit down and you say, I'm going to really be on my breath. 
but you're thinking about what's for lunch. But someone cut you off on the line to the bathroom before the sitting, and you can still feel kind of a knot in your stomach of being angry, being cut off in the bathroom. And then uh, you're a little bit worried about getting enough sleep tonight. And then your knee hurts, and it goes on and on, right? And so your mind then is jumping around, moving here and there, all these different things. Your intention is one thing, your thoughts are doing something else, your emotions are doing something else, and, you know, it's just not harmonized. The state of samadhi is a state where we begin to gather ourselves together and kind of relax into ourselves so that all the desperate forces of who we are and distractions and fragmentation begins to kind of, they begin to kind of settle in together. And a big part of what helps this samadhi arise is relaxing, is letting go. But not letting go, just letting go by itself, but letting, letting go and then letting go into. So letting go into whatever <coughs> this, the f focal center is for your samadhi, for your concentration. So if it's your breathing, that's the focal center. That's where the, everything gathers around, it collects itself. And so you don't just let go of your thoughts, but you can kind of, as you let go of your thoughts, also let go back into the experience of breathing. Or whatever the focus is you want to have, or you want to rest. And then kind of let everything kind of, and let go back into it. Whatever takes you out, let go back into it. And um, the, uh, the word that I like a lot, to, the way of translating samadhi, is the word composure. It uh, turns out that it has the same etymological roots as the word samadhi, to be composed. And so rather than, you know, because sometimes people, when they say to tell them to get concentrated, uh, they, they kind of start up in the control tower in the head and they take this laser focus and, you know, try to, you know, zap what they're looking at. And, um, but it's not about, you know, zapping or laser focus. Uh, it's about getting composed on the experience. Composed with the whole body, settling in, and just being fully there for this experience. And, uh, and, and a lot of it, gets to say, like I said, has to do with relaxing, letting go, because the state of samadhi is, is a mind that is soft. If the mind is getting hard, and tight and trying to get concentrated, it's not really going to get concentrated in a way that's helpful for letting samadhi arise. And so, um, so this a soft mind, a uh, malleable mind, a quiet mind. So it's not easy to do, but you can't force it. But you help create the conditions for it. It takes a lot of patience. But you have to kind of, it's kind of like, you have to tend it and nurture it. So you, you know, kind of be, be very patient and, and kind of like try to be, try to be, create, try to imagine your, or actually do, create the conditions of feeling tender, collected, safe, um, present, so that you want to be here, you want to gather together, you want to get composed here. So what does it take to begin like having this moment, this time, this place, this body, be kind of a place that you want to gather in and settle into and be here? And if you're a taskmaster, it's not going to be very welcoming. If you're like, 
insisting you get to the 12th jhana by noon, you know, it's not going to be so conducive to being a good place. If you're in conflict with yourself and feel like you have to push things away and deny parts of yourself or be angry with part of who you are, be angry with the fact you're thinking, um, it just kind of doesn't really allow for this softness, doesn't allow for this, this, this moment here to be a place that's welcoming, a place of love, a place of kindness, friendliness. So something like that. We want to kind of create conditions where we want to kind of, it's, we want to settle in, just be here. So that's on one hand, and and and, uh, and let the, let things. So you let go of your your thoughts, best you can. Let them get quiet. Let them recede into the background. You don't have to give a lot. You don't have to give a lot of attention to your thoughts. Sometimes meditators think the thoughts are a problem, and that just makes it things worse. Thoughts don't, thoughts can be your friend, uh, and you can just let them recede in the background. You can ignore them. If you can, you're supposed to, you don't have to get rid of them. You can just like, a great image that was given many years ago in Burma was treat your thoughts like you're walking on a, in a park with a friend in the fall and you're talking and, um, and the leaves on the trees are falling down around you, but you're mostly involved with your friend and carrying on your conversation. So they say, let your thoughts just be like leaves kind of falling off in, in the background and don't give them so much authority and credence, and they'll manage just fine without you. And so you can stay on focus and make this a welcoming place, a place to settle in. So what does it take for you to help you feel safe here, and collected here, and welcome here? And how do, how do you relate to the places that are painful in you, and places that are difficult in you? And How do you relate to them so this be- begins to feel like a welcoming place? And one of the ways is to be kind, kind to all this here. So to settle down, get quieter, is part of the function of concentration. Then that's balanced with effort or energy or vitality. This is also a beautiful quality. We have a faculty, we have a capacity for vitality. Um, And uh, from time to time you can sit here and uh, you can feel that, you know, just to sit upright, there has to be energy, there's life in you, flow of life and vitality, and there's a lot of that goes on here without you needing to work at it. Just, you're just, you know, your, your faculties operate and you hear sounds and you sit upright and... So your vitality, it's, it's a beautiful, it's kind of a miracle, just to be, just to be. And, and what is it, how is it to engage, take your energy and, your, and engage so you're more mindful, you're more interested. And I think one of the things is, is interest, curiosity, amazement. Wow. I just had a thought. Wow. Pretty awesome. There's another thought. And then you think, wow. Five billion years of evolution, all built to this point, so I could have this thought. Isn't that amazing? You remember all those things that happened all those years? All that have to happen and evolution, and if you believe in it, it's, it's amazing. And, and 
you want to get mess it all up by believing the thought? <laughs> Reacting to it and picking it up and outdoing it. You know, just wow. So to be interested and curious, what is this? And that's the kind of the great vipassana question. What is this? What is happening? What is a thought? What is a feeling? What is a breath? What is awareness? And there's something about that question, what, that um, you kind of don't want to have an answer. It's, an, it's great just to have the question, what? Because it kind of opens, opens to the miracle, opens to possibility. Like, like in the first moment after a what, you kind of look or you kind of feel, you're kind of open to. And that initial opening is where there can be freedom. If you say what, and then you go through, you know, your, all your logic and analysis to try to figure out what it is, you might be closing down. But that moment, what? And what happens to that what? What is this? That kind of opening to this happens towards something like the breath. Like if you're con- getting concent- using breath as a concentration focus, just what? And you relax into it. Or what? And then you allow your breathing to come to you and just show itself to you. You don't have to think about it. And then do it again. What is this here? When I was a Zen student once, someone gave a Dharma talk. After the Dharma talk, I went down to the meditation hall and sat there alone for several hours. And just kind of, kind of in awe, kind of sitting there. And what is this? What's going on? And I was like, what is this? And I wasn't looking for an answer. I just was so happy or delighted. It just like, it felt so rich. Just this what here. So energy, effort, engagement from interest. These thing about, uh, the, I think one of the reasons I was given concentration and energy as the theme for today is that these are often paired, that they kind of come into balance. Concentration has a functioning, the samadhi, the settling, this letting go, this composing, being settled and here, can lend itself to um, getting uh, uh, what's called sinking mind, where the mind starts getting too dull. Some people, when they meditate, associate meditation with getting calm. They want to get calm. Some people even soothe themselves with their meditation. And that's fine up to a point. And if you're using meditation or the breath to soothe yourself, to calm yourself, at some point you're probably just going to calm yourself into stupor, into dullness. So uh, if you, get, you can get too calm or have a sinking mind and there's not much effort there. And that's why we want to have and balance it with effort, with energy. But not too much. You don't want to be like the prisoner who got all excited. You know, that's called a, a, a rising mind. You don't have a balance between balance of energy and and um, stillness, energy and concentration, <coughs> energy and composure. So uh, sometimes uh, that's by bringing more interest to your experience. Sometimes by sitting up straighter. Sometimes by brightening up the mind, mind of awareness. So you can. Sometimes uh, we use the mental noting. If you haven't used mental noting, it's a good tool to have in your toolkit where you um, very, uh, start using uh, one 
you know, a single word that somehow characterizes what you're noticing, thinking, thinking, hearing, seeing, feeling. And it's a way of sometimes of bringing energy because you're a little more engaged if you're sinking and getting dull. And then if you're getting too uh, energized, if you're getting too excited and lots of energy, sometimes then the, the, the composure or getting settled or getting more focused and is helpful sometimes to calm things down, to let go and settle into the point of composure, the point of concentration. Just let go and just relax. So, the fact that we have the ability to apply ourselves, to engage, is another one of these miracles. How do you want to, and you're, you, you are engaged much of the time anyway. The question is, what do you want to be engaged in? When you're walking down the hill to the dining room, there's a lot of energy, a lot of, you know, you're walking going, or, or scooting and um, going down. And chances are that you're, you, don't, you don't have a blank mind. Chances are you're thinking about something. There's energy involved in there and that. Is that the best? What, if you, if you don't give some thought to how you use your natural energy that's available at that, that time, is the habits that you fall into the best use of your time? Or is, the best, is there something that feels really welcoming, that's really nurturing, that's re more closely connected to doing the mindfulness practice as you walk down the hill? So you take the energy that's available, the engagement that's available, and don't engage it in figuring out how you can be first in line. Or don't engage it in trying to kind of study everyone else's socks and who, you know, what those the right socks that they brought to meditation hall, to meditation retreat. There's all kinds of things you can do, right? But rather lovingly bring it engaged to be here, present, settled here, composed here. Just really being, what is it like to, do you know what it's like to be composed and settled and present in the simplicity of being just here, just this. The simplicity of just here, what is this? What is it? And how to do that so there's love here, there's goodwill, there's friendliness. What arises for you in this simplicity of being? It's a great opportunity here when you're here to be curious, to be interested, to find yourself, to discover yourself, to settle into yourself in the moment, the lived experience of this moment. And there's freedom to be found. And it's freedom is not the complicated thing, but it has a lot to do with the freedom to be simple here in this moment and not be pulled into the future, the past, fantasy, to be hooked into desires and aversions. You don't have to get rid of any of that, but to be free is to see it for what it is. When's it a thought? To see it as a thought, to see it as arising and passing.
when there's an if there's aversion, you don't have to get rid of the aversion, but to see clearly what is this miracle of having this aversion? Wow. There's freedom in the wow. Look at that. Because you step back and you're open. What is this? And that what is it? There's freedom. If you have strong desire for something, wow, what is this? What is it? And there's freedom right there. The miracle of freedom right there. Wow, what is this? And if that makes, doesn't make any sense, then the miracle of asking, what is Gil talking about? What a, wow. <laughs> so I'll end by saying something about each of you. Something profound, something that's marvelous and wondrous, wondrous about each and every one of you. And that is, wow. <laughs> wow. Amazing. Wondrous. Here we are. Thank you for being here. Thank you for sharing this time, this retreat, and, and uh, being in a community this way. And I hope that you take good care of each other and appreciate the marvel of these days here on this land, walking the land under the sky and the oaks. Breathing, settled, here. So let's take a few minutes to compose ourselves. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.